Come on in to Margaret McSweeney's Kitchen for Kitchen Chat, where every week you'll meet chefs, cookbook authors, foodies, gourmets, and just plain people who love to eat. And along with laughter, chat, recipes, and stories about food, you'll sometimes also hear words of inspiration, love, and hope. As Margaret always says, kitchen chat is food for the senses and food for the soul. So grab a cup of coffee, put your feet up on a comfy chair, and get ready to spend a little time with Margaret and her friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Kitchen Chat. This is your host, Margaret McSweeney. And friends, I am just so delighted and honored that you're stopping by my kitchen today. And I really appreciate all of your feedback. And I'm excited real quickly to mention that I will have an official website for Kitchen Chat that will come up uh, the first part of December. Meanwhile, please connect with me on my new Facebook page, which is Kitchen Chat, all one word. You can leave questions for upcoming guests, your recipes, and just, you know, take a moment and sip some coffee and, and go through the, the different comments and everything. But today, we are going to go on quite the food adventure. And this is going to be, you know, very interesting. We are going to be speaking with Dana Goodyear, who has just written a very interesting book called Anything That Moves, Renegade Chef's Fearless Eaters, and the Making of a New American Food Culture. And she has literally been quite a fearless eater in writing this book. And I just can't wait for you to hear from her and kind of get a perspective of the foodie spectrum and the beginnings and and how it all happened and where we are today and what is next. So without further ado, Dana Goodyear, welcome to Kitchen Chat. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. It's such a pleasure to be here. Well, I must say that reading your book, wow, <laughs> do not uh, read it when you've just eaten because some of it you'll be like, oh, interesting. I didn't know you could eat that part of a... <laughs> but, um, but it's just so fascinating. And what I really, really loved, and I'd love for you to share with the listeners, kind of the history of, of um, just a brief overview of what became gourmet? I mean, how did the term gourmet um, and the the whole uh, foodie culture come to the United States? I think a lot of the listeners will be surprised about the origins. Yeah, there there's a history that starts in about 2008 that we will talk about later, and that's when we get into the what we call sort of the foodie moment. But the I traced the roots of this movement back to World War II when refugees from Europe were coming to this country, starting over. Many of them had been successful business people already, but they had to leave everything or most everything behind and come here and figure out a new way of life in America. And some of them said, you know, there there were these amazing foods that I was eating back in Germany, back in Austria, back in France. And maybe there's an would be an appreciation for them here in meatloaf and mashed potatoes America. So they began to build this gourmet is it was called it then it, it was the specialty foods industry and and after the war they were able to go back to Europe and then travel all around Asia and Latin America shopping finding things that were maybe ordinary in those countries and bringing them here and presenting them as novelties to American diners. The moment was ripe for this in our country because 
there were returning servicemen who had been exposed to travel and to foods from overseas who were maybe a little bit more uh, willing to open up. And it was also a period of great prosperity in America, and there was it was a time of suburbanization. People were moving into the suburbs, into houses. They had more space to entertain. They were having their neighbors over, and they wanted to show off a little bit. So there was it was a great way to show off was to say, oh, look, at I got this, this caviar. This is foie gras. You may never <laughs> have heard of foie gras. Or in some cases, um, you know, ladies in my bridge group, these are chocolate-covered ants. Does anyone dare taste one? <laughs> so that was the origin, and many of which, well, I don't know about the chocolate-covered ants, but many of which seem to be standard table fare, I mean, very accessible these days. So it all began where those were really new and exciting foods that, that many of the the residents here had never encountered. And, uh, and back then, I mean, sorry to interrupt, I just want to make this quick point that even something that we think of as so uh, mainstream now, like Hawaiian punch was on the list of delicacies that were being sold uh, around the country by these by this group of original uh, original importers. So, so something like Hawaiian punch or marinated artichokes were a real exotic food then. Wow. And it's so interesting how that, which was perceived exotic then, as compared to some of the things that are being perceived as exotic now. <laughs> I don't know yeah. how how we made the jump from marinated artichokes to escargot camoles, and I'm probably pronouncing that right, <laughs> wrong, uh, which are the, the eggs of ants. <laughs> so from artichokes yeah. to ant eggs, <laughs> how did that happen? Well, I think it's always instructive, I think, to look at this example of sushi. So 30 years ago, sushi was considered really exotic. Not it, it, People thought it was not going to be possible to get Americans to eat sushi. Yes, we ate fish, but we didn't eat raw fish, and we didn't eat food prepared right in front of us. We didn't eat food prepared by people not wearing gloves. And everything about sushi seemed antithetical to uh, American eating habits. And uh, a Japanese businessman, a Japanese businessman living in America, and his American business partner who were on a buying trip to Japan looking for kitchen utensils to interest American housewives and homemakers in, they stumbled upon the idea, and it was really the American who said, this is so amazing. I've never had this before. I think that people would really like this. And the Japanese man said, I really don't think we should try this. I think it's way too risky. And they did it anyway. They opened the first sushi bar in America in Los Angeles, and and it was a slow build, but it was, we know you can get sushi in every grocery store in America today. So there is a process by which we become comfortable with things, and it is unpredictable. So for years and for for 25 years, sushi was really for only the most adventurous diners and people who had maybe traveled to Tokyo and so had encountered it there, and then they could get it in LA, and then eventually in New York. But a confluence of events made the created the opportunity for a broader spectrum of Americans to get interested. And, and this is what I learned that it was the revision of the food pyramid to emphasize fish, and it was the rise of the Japanese car, and it was the best-selling novel, Shogun. And those three factors made Americans accept sushi. And now it's at, 
you know, it's at Ralph's or it's at name your local grocery store. <laughs> and that is amazing where a lot of the culture, cultural influences impacts what we eat as well. But how do you explain, I guess you have really delved into the counterculture of the foodie uh, movement and uh, and what an adventure. I mean, I, part of it feels like reading a James Bond spy. <laughs> and, um, and, and you have encountered, I mean, just and, and sampled some some really interesting um, things out there. And I guess my kind of overall question, and we'll touch upon a few of these specific samples, but I mean, how does one determine what can or cannot be eaten safely? I mean, that, and I know um, several foodies carry around this Utah clay, which helps, you know, prevent food poisoning. But I mean, how does one determine, oh, I think I'm going to, to try a cricket today. I mean, I mean, what, who determines what is food, I guess, is my question. It's, it's such an interesting and excellent question. And, and truly the answer is that every individual has to make that choice for herself. But there are, in this country, broader structures in place. We have a regulatory bodies that tell us what is food and what is not food and what's you know, one of the terms of art is generally recognized as safe or um, or not, and and those those systems were set up a bit more than a hundred years ago, basically to try to codify the very wild west American food system, and most of your listeners probably will remember reading The Jungle in high school. That was the novel written by Upton Sinclair, published in 1906, that it was a novel, but he had reported it, and in it he revealed what was really going on in the meatpacking industry in Chicago, and which was the center of the meatpacking industry in the country. And it was so impactful that it was able to, it was a, it was a deciding factor in getting some legislation passed that had been in the works for decades actually and but but it was it was so shocking that people said oh my gosh we really need to have some standards here because the stuff that's in the can is not what's on the label and this is really terrifying and so these systems were set up and it became the modern USDA and the modern FDA and they were intended to restore consumer confidence and bring people closer to their food and and make them feel more comfortable that what, what they see is what they get but in the minds of a lot of the people that I spent time with in reporting this book and the sort of um, thought leaders in the food movement, the result has been the opposite, that people feel more alienated from their, from their food. And they, the, these regulations entrench an industrialized food system. And so people are going the unofficial route. People want the stuff that is, has not been looked at by the government. And I think that's a really interesting development. Yes, and and also, and you touch upon it too about um, sustainability, and you know, in what is it, 2050? That my goodness, uh, there's going to be a real lack of a lot of what we're used to eating, and um, and some of it with the foresight of well, a lot of cultures are eating insects, and there's this protein from the insects. But how do you serve an insect? And I I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, the next time at that 
time of year when you say, oh, excuse me, waiter, there's a fly in my soup. They'll say, oh, no, it's your protein. (laughs) Exactly. That's a special amused boost from the chef. Right. um, We didn't charge you for that one. Um, I know. it's, it's It's really interesting to think about that. I mean, the great irony is that at this moment, the some of the most elite elite eaters in the world are starting to eat like some of the most resourceful eaters in the world and some of the most resourceful eaters in the world traditionally you know China for example are adopting the 20th century western way of eating which is to say industrialized protein, you know industrialized farm fa- factory farms and an expectation of meat at every meal and so I think the drive for broadening and the drive for change in this country comes from a sense of, wow, we set something in motion that has had unintended consequences, and overall we understand a lot more about the impacts of these kinds of practices, and uh uh-oh, it's especially scary because the rest of the world is catching on and wanting to do the same thing that we were doing, and it's a pretty bleak future to imagine when you think of that. But there's a hopeful aspect of it, which is that those same cultures, if we can learn from them, we can possibly turn it around again. And you know, think about something like jellyfish. Okay, mm-hmm. jellyfish. I grew up thinking jellyfish were something to avoid. You, know, you didn't want yes. to get stung <laughs> when you were swimming in the ocean. And then I started encountering jellyfish in the course of eating adventurously, and I discovered that jellyfish are really delicious. Well, this is a perfect thing to discover because in our um, greed or whatever you want to call it, we have fished out the major predators of jellyfish in the ocean. So jellyfish are thriving. There are tons of jellyfish. We can potentially, if people can turn on to jellyfish and say, oh, yeah, the Chinese have been eating jellyfish for centuries and they have some really excellent ways of they have some excellent ways of preparing jellyfish then maybe we can solve a problem that was created by appetite by using appetite right right that is interesting and how do you prepare jellyfish is it fried or or broiled <laughs> and it's what do you season it with but it's the seasoning is actually what makes it really nice it's um sesame oil and and rice wine vinaigrette and so it's really like do you know what do you like cellophane noodles you know it has yes. that sort of texture like a little bit al dente and it sort of looks looks like cellophane noodles. it's not slimy it's just it's it's you know sort of slippery like like kind of wet noodles and wow. um and then the the vinaigrette i think is Wonderful. So it's kind of served or, or, or prepared as noodles, not like yeah. a big slob. Okay. Exactly. So not like yeah, a yeah, yeah. jellyfish steak. It's okay. Tentacles. Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Wow. You know what? How did your fearless eating begin, Dana? Was it for this book or was it pre-existing and you just had an insatiable curiosity to, to pursue what the origins and future and, and present was? Or, I mean, have well, you I don't always... think I, could, I couldn't have done it if I, if I didn't have a little bit of, a, <laughs> of that natural drive myself. But I, I am, I've always been a, a, an open and curious eater. I grew up with 
um, you know, my mom is a great cook who cooked everything from scratch when we were kids, but also had a very kind of early forager mentality. She yes. has always carried hedge clippers in her purse and she'll <laughs> happily, you know, snip something over a neighbor's fence or something like that. So she, she's kind of been onto that Renee Redzeffi thing for a long time. And my dad was a hunter. So, you know, while we had lots of normal food from the grocery store, and I don't want to imply that we lived on some kind oh. of <laughs> radical food island, right. we, uh, I always thought it was special when we were eating something that that dad had brought home or that mom had brought home. And so the idea that there was more out there was just a given for me from the time I was a kid. And, and I also, you know, then I, whenever I was at somebody's house or was able to travel, I, I just had a say yes policy. And so, you know, I, I didn't think of myself as some kind of, um, you know, daredevil, but I did think I could learn about culture by eating and and I still think I still think that that that's why food as food is really interesting. It's delightful. It's there are lots of great stories. But food as a way of looking at culture is to me a really fascinating subject. Yes, definitely. And and quite the different types of food. I mean, it, it, we have to talk about these two things. I just cannot even imagine. I was reading about, uh, and I know a lot of the, the listeners were exposed to this in the bucket list, um, where Jack Nicholson drinks the coffee or the kopi luwak, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, <laughs> coffee. And can you tell us a little bit about, first of all, how was this discovered? Um, this Kopi Luwak um, coffee beans gathered from civet droppings, and it, it's extremely rare and $1,000 a pound. I mean, did someone follow around the civet <laughs> and say this would make well, great it's coffee? Origins, or? Its origins are obscure. I mean, they're, you know, so the, the anecdotal history is all we've got, and it says that somebody just scavenged, somebody noticed that there were coffee beans in the droppings and thought, I wonder if you can brew those. I mean, it's really hard to know. It happened okay. at some point, some unknown person discovered this. But it's instructive that even if it's apocryphal, because it shows us something about how something that we really pretty universally people all over the world do not consider food, something that's right. been digested by another animal, and maybe the only time that that's considered possible food is when you are literally starving because there are cases and, you know, the Donner Party, they, they took some extreme measures like that because they were literally starving. And right. so there's an aspect of desperation eating that's being catapulted and recontextualized, at, uh, catapulted to the just absolute upper heights of elite eating. And recategorized and sold at $1,000 a pound. So there's a very strange collision of high and low there. And But what we know is that, you know, these coffee beans, when cleaned and brewed properly, they really do taste wonderful. Wow. <laughs> the coffee is delicious. <laughs> it's, it's totally delicious. It's really impractical. You cannot make a habit out of it. But, right. um, you know, you can buy it at Dean and DeLuca now. So something that sounds totally outrageous is it will this at those prices it can't enter the mainstream but it's entering right. the mainstream consciousness and 
some, and there are people who are starting to do knockoffs of it. With I read something, I don't know how, if he's getting anywhere, but there's a guy who's trying to do it with using elephants, which can uh, excrete <laughs> so much more at a time. So, so, so there's a guy wow. trying to mass produce this stuff. <laughs> that is, oh my, that is going to be really interesting. Well, with your many fearless eating adventures, what has been the most memorable? Uh, taste memory, I guess. What what were you really surprised about uh, in your adventures? That you know what that that is a good taste. I discovered that I really do love the Escamoles. This is uh-huh. the um, this is the Mexican delicacy that uh, is known by some people call it Mexican caviar. It's the it's the immature stages of a specific ant, and it's. People call it ant eggs for shorthand, and I will refer to them that way, but it's actually the larval and pupal stages, which are a little bit bigger, but they don't look like ants. They look like teeny tiny little eggs, which is why people call them ant eggs. And I had them prepared by a fabulously talented chef who's become a friend of mine, Laurent Quigny, who is one of the most open-minded diners and chefs that I've, I've encountered. And he has thought of all kinds of things that you can do with these little eggs. Can you do them? He's going to try a meringue. He's going to try a display. <laughs> but uh, he, what he, what he did with them the first time I had them um, was to lightly fry them with shallots and in butter and then serve them on a warm corn tortilla and a uh, squeeze of lime juice and a little shot of Japanese beer and it was and and uh, don't let me forget a, a beautiful edible nasturtium leaf that he had picked from his garden that morning, mm-hmm. and it was so special. Wow, I I just oh my hat's off to you <laughs> for trying <laughs> these these really interesting um, counterculture of the foodie market items and which might become mainstream down the road. And it's so interesting what you did talk about, the collision of, of, of what's happening with oat and lower cuisine and all of that yeah. and sur- survival versus elitism eating. Um, you know, what is the main message um, to that you would like to, to give our le- to give our listeners and um, about uh, beginning adventure dining. <laughs> I mean, should, oh, should they, how, yeah. if you want to do it, how do you how do you get going on that path? Right, right. The question. Yes. I, I I think the first thing to do is to decide that this would be a fun way to spend your afternoon. Of course, you know you have to think. You know what? I've never even if it's just I've never been to that neighborhood before. I want to go to that neighborhood, and going to eat in a restaurant in that neighborhood is an excuse to experience it. And then I think one of the most important things and what certainly uh, was critical for me is to find a guide. So you find that friend who either speaks a different language or spent a semester in a different country or lives in a different neighborhood or has studied you know, I think this can apply to any kind of cooking. If, if your friend knows all about those, the magic powders of the modernist <laughs> cooking um, world, get them to explain it to you. Go to one of those restaurants with them and have somebody there to interpret it for you because otherwise it can be just, you could be overwhelmed with how different it all is. And I think that when you start to unpack it, it really starts to feel meaningful and it becomes something that is not just a thrill or a one-off, but it's, 
wow, this is a great leisure activity. This is really fun. I learned something. I learned something about the world. I learned something about food chemistry. I learned something about, you know, language. And I learned something about my senses and what I like and what I don't like. And that's what it is all about, finding the taste and experiencing the culture. That That is so true. So your adventures in eating continue, and I'm just so <laughs> thrilled that you are on Kitchen Chat today. And, and listeners, I'm going to provide a link to Dana Goodyear's new book, Anything That Moves, Renegade Chefs, Fearless Eaters, and the Making of a New American Food Culture, and also be a link uh, to uh, Amazon or your local bookstore, which uh, will be carrying this book. And uh, thank you for enlightening us on this whole foodie culture and it'll be very interesting years from now to see if um, you know we have the little escamoles <laughs> on our table and um, time will tell time will <laughs> tell and meanwhile keep the pepto-bismol close at hand or the utah clay i guess <laughs> oh thank you so thank much. you so much it was really fun talking to you Oh, thank you. And listeners, please take the time today and get a cup of coffee or just take a few moments for yourself and always remember to savor the day. Thank you for joining us today. If you're interested in Margaret's books, A Mother's Heart Knows, Pro Girls Encountering Grit, Experiencing Grace, and Go Back and Be Happy, please just click on the covers on the webtalkradio.net page in front of you. Margaret would love to connect with you and hear from you. So join her on Twitter, Facebook, her blog, or click on this website to leave a note and share a recipe. Thank you again, and we'll see you here again for a new show next week.